0: Today we conclude our series in First John. Welcome to those visiting, both in person and online. We turn to First John 5 verses 13 through 21, and there's an outline on page four as well. First John chapter five. Beginning now in verse 13. Hear God's word. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, Keep yourselves from idols. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Do some of you remember the old Northwest Airlines? I think the Vikings training facilities built on their old headquarters. Well, in 1994, Northwest Airlines offered some unusual round-trip tickets for 59 bucks, you got a mystery fare. That means you would get a one-day trip to an undisclosed location. Not surprisingly, people were excited about it, but also, not surprisingly, many were disappointed when they found out where they were headed. One buyer was hoping for a one-day trip to New Orleans, but he found out he had a ticket for, you guessed it, where? Minneapolis. <laughs> he walked through the airport terminal shouting to everyone, I have one ticket to the Mall of America, I'll trade it for anything. Now, when you're going somewhere, it's important that you know where you're headed, right? Kids, it's important that you know what day today is. Yes, it's Mother's Day. It's the Sabbath day. It's important that we know when it comes to Christianity what we believe and why we believe it. Seven times in these nine verses, John mentions the word to know. 37 times in the book, he mentions the word to know. Meaning, what God wants us to know today is what we believe and why we believe it related to these particular things. First, knowing that you are saved. Now John also wrote, in addition to First John, kids, the Gospel of John, didn't he? And near the end of the Gospel of John, it's very similar to the end of 1 John. John 20. John wrote his Gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John wrote his Gospel to convince those who read it that Jesus is the Christ. John writes first John here chapter 5 verse 13 he gives you the purpose statement for the book he writes to those who do believe Jesus is the Christ that we might he says know that we have eternal life John wants you to have assurance of salvation and yet we struggle with doubt what are some reasons for our doubt? Well, some of them might be intellectual. Some might be moral reasons. Some might be our own sin, being very introspective. Sometimes it might be the devil. It could be afflictions physical, emotional, spiritual. It could be theological confusion. God does not want you to worry, to doubt, or to lack assurance as to whether you're a Christian. When we lack assurance, this robs us of joy. It saps us of vitality. And it takes us away from energetically, by the Spirit, serving in the church and serving one another. Now, there is absolutely a danger of false assurance. The Westminster Confession, 1646, says, Hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God. False assurance comes when we continually look at ourselves and talk about all we've done. That's not true assurance. True assurance comes from the gospel, by the Spirit, as we trust in the promises of God by faith in Jesus. It also comes from the testimony of the Holy Spirit within our hearts, Romans 8. And, both the Westminster and the canon of Dort say, assurance comes from a serious and holy pursuit of a clear conscience and of good works. So we should, like Second Peter says, be diligent to make our calling and election sure, that our hearts might be enlarged in peace and joy, Westminster Confession 18, in love and thankfulness, in strength and cheerfulness in obedience, those are the proper fruits of assurance. We cannot put into words how great this blessing is, that God grants to us the assurance that our sins are forgiven for the sake of Jesus. The job of your pastor and your elders is not to be a motivator. We're not life coaches. And certainly, speaking of myself, I'm not a fix-it guy. (laughs) I don't fix things well. What are we called to do? To proclaim the gospel of Jesus. And as John Calvin said, the pastor's role is to be a minister of assurance. The promises of Christ. This means Christian that you know you have eternal life, and that changes everything. Imagine going into a store where all the price tags are flipped around. Say you go into Shields, and a pack of gum over at Shields in Eden Prairie is like $1,000 for a pack of gum. And the biggest, best thing you want to buy in Shields, or maybe a brand new truck, is like 5 bucks. Imagine that. That's the world we live in right now. All the price tags are flipped around. The things that the world values are ultimately insignificant. And the pearl of great price, the Lord Jesus, the world scoffs at, stumbles over. Knowing that you have eternal life changes your view of everything. As a Christian, you realize my understanding of God and myself is different. As a Christian, in particular, as a Reformed Christian, my view of salvation and discipleship has been changed. My view of worship and evangelism, our view of our children and how we raise our children, our view of the church, how we study the Bible, it's all changed. As is, secondly, our view of understanding prayer. What else does John want you to know? He wants you to know that your father hears your prayers. Assurance of salvation matters in how we pray. Do you see verse 14? We are praying here toward him. Who is that? Not to saints, not to angels, but to our Father. And we know God hears us when we pray. That word if, verse 15, means since. There's an assurance That as you pray, the Holy Spirit is helping you pray. The the Son of God is interceding for you as you pray and presenting your prayers perfect before the Father. That's what the incense was all about in the Old Testament, wasn't it? This idea of prayer rising up before God. Well, Christ brings those prayers to the Father and says, here they are, presented before him. And Jesus is praying for you. Interceding for you. Meaning, prayer is drawing near to God with boldness, with confidence, enjoying God in a relationship that you have with your Father by faith in Jesus. As you pray, you are to ask, seek, knock, make requests of God. That's what John is telling us here. We know that see that word again, no, verse 15, we have the requests that we have asked of him. Now, what does that not mean? First of all, we need to point out the despicable nature, as one person says, of the word, faith, health, wealth, heresy. And along with that, what they call the doctrine of positive confession, meaning, They teach that we can call things into being in prayer. That is unbiblical. We do not bind God to give us what we confess with our mouth if we have enough faith. That is actually a sinful tantrum. Positive confession, health well stuff is actually more like pagan witchcraft than Christianity. It has nothing to do with Christianity. It's paganism that says, I can manipulate God into giving me what I want. And the Bible never says that you are promised health and wealth in this life. We pray, oh God, give us strength and health. We do. But as one person says, in some ways, a long life of good health is just the slowest way to die. (laughs) That sounds negative, but we have to recognize that. We're not living for this world. And yes, we pray for health and strength and that God would bless our labors, but that's not the basis at all of Christianity. What does this mean? We have the requests we've asked of him. One thing it means, when we bring our requests to God, he doesn't forget. Maybe you have a long inbox of emails or text messages or phone calls that you forget to answer, right? Right? God doesn't forget. It's not like he's got all these prayer requests loaded up in a bag outside somewhere waiting to get to him. He hears them immediately. He loves to hear his children speak. Moms and dads, you love it, right? When your kids talk to you, especially as they get older, that they don't just grunt, but they actually communicate in a loving relationship with you. Mom and dad, you love to give good gifts to your kids, don't you? Your father loves to hear you talk to him, and he loves to give good gifts to his children even more than you love to give good gifts to your children. There's another thing we have to be aware of here, though. When we come to God by faith, we realize there's the danger of our prayers as well being hindered. What does that mean? Our prayers can be hindered If we come, not in faith, but in unbelief. Our prayers can be hindered if we come in disobedience. The psalmist says, If I cherish sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. First, Peter says something very interesting here. It says, The prayers of a husband are hindered when he does not live with his wife in an understanding way. Prayer is also hindered by wrong motives. So a prayer that's contrary to God's will, James 4, does not reach our Father in heaven. What does John say? 1 John 5, we must ask according to his will. So what then does prayer do? Does prayer change God's mind? No. Does prayer change things? Maybe you've seen that slogan, prayer changes things. Technically, no. No. God changes things. He may use and does use prayer in his purposes of changing things. In prayer, this is incredible, you become God's instrument, Legan Duncan says, as God accomplishes his will and purposes. In his grace, God ordains to work out his plan with the use of the prayers of his people. How then are we to pray? Not my will but your will be done. Your kingdom come. That's what Jesus prayed, remember, in the garden of Gethsemane. What is God's will? We hear that a lot. The first understanding of God's will is his secret, perfect counsel and sovereign will of decree that cannot be changed. We do not have access to this. Deuteronomy 29:29. 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things revealed belong to us and our children talk about the will of God in prayer, it's talking about the things that have been revealed. Here's an example. Say a young man meets a girl and says, I love her, I want to marry her, and she's not a Christian. Should he pray and ask, God, is it your will that I marry this girl who's not a Christian? Should he do that? No, why not? Because it's clearly God's revealed will in the Bible that a Christian should not marry a non-Christian. So you pray according to God's will with your Bible open. 1 John is an example. You're struggling with doubts. Pray, God, help me to have the assurance of salvation. Father, help me to love other people because by nature, none of us loves other people. (laughs) By nature, we all are turned in on ourselves. God, help me to love you because right now my heart is cold, we're getting ready to go to church. I don't really want to go to church. I don't really want to talk to anyone at church, and I don't really want to listen to a sermon today. I just want to get to the Mother's Day buffet early. God, change my heart. There's all sorts of things that 1 John helps us with. First John helps us to pray big, kingdom-centered prayers, like Walt did earlier today, for the gospel going forth in Turkey. First John helps us to realize, Lord, I need spiritual maturity because right now I'm struggling. I need you to do a work to save the lost, those people I love that are walking in darkness. Say you're a mother today. Maybe you're a first-time mother, or you remember when you were a first-time mother. And when you're a first-time mother, at times you can experience perhaps overwhelming fear at every cry that baby makes. That can quickly lead a loving mother into despondency, into this weight of hyper-responsibility and fear. What might help a mother who's going through that? Or any of us who are going through anxiety like we saw a few weeks ago? The Psalms. A mother might read Psalm 121 and realize the Lord is in control, The Lord is on his throne. The Lord cares for this little child as the baby is sleeping far more than I can. The Lord watches over him or her. And that can help our anxious, downtrodden hearts. Praying for our children. As we open our Bibles, we realize our children belong to the Lord, they are covenant children. Praying that God would fulfill the promises made to them in their baptism. That God is their God. That they are his children. That our children might be wandering from the Lord. That we would not forget to continue to patiently, persistently pray for them to come to the Lord by faith. Praying for our mothers. As you open your Bible, you realize in certain places, like 1 Timothy, the blessing of growing up in a covenant home with believing parents. Timothy did not have a believing father. His father was an unbelieving Gentile. But his grandmother and mother, Lois and Eunice, were Jews who came to faith in Christ. What a blessing you children have to grow up in a home where mom and dad love you, where mom and dad love each other, and where mom and dad love the Lord above all else, where mom and dad opened the Bible with you, Day by day, where they pray for you, and where you have a church family who does this for you. One of the things we we're praying for in terms of the missionary that we uh, support in Turkey, Fikr Bocek, his son has a friend who just came to faith in Christ. And do you know what this young boy, who's a new Christian, is praying? He's praying for his mother to come to faith in Jesus. And he's praying that they might be able to have family devotions together one day. It is a great privilege to have Jesus, the pearl of great price, presented before you in the word of God, children, every day, and Lord's day after Lord's day. One thing we learn in prayer is patience. As we're praying for the will of the Lord, we're saying, not my will, but your will be done. Another thing along with patience is persistence. So it's a patient persistence, like the parable of the widow in Luke 18. The psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you what? The desire of your heart. Your father hears you and delights in you because your prayers are offered in the name of Jesus. God's not indifferent to you. Isn't that important to know? We're so often indifferent to God and to each other. We're so often kind of bothered and irritated by each other. God's not that way at all. God never turns you away. God never says no more. Stop. You are God's beloved children, chosen in eternity, people for whom he's given his son so in prayer we offer up our desires to God that's one thing we do we pour out our hearts to God do you have someone in your life that you can trust and pour out your hearts and struggles to many of you do maybe some of you don't if you do or don't you know you can do it to the Lord he tells you cry out to me continue know that I am the giver of every good gift to know that God is the bestower of all good things and he invites you to come to him and to not come to him would be like someone who said, you've got a million dollars buried underneath your bird feeder in the backyard. Go home, just be, just undig it or dig it up. <laughs> it's right there, a million dollars. And you'd say, no way, I'm not going to do it. That's what it's like to know that God wants you to pray and not to go to him. We are to persist in prayer because what does the Bible say? He answers us. There's some things that we ought not to receive until God knows that we are serious about getting them. We all give up in prayer, don't we? Why is that? We think God won't answer. Do you know the Bible never says that? The Bible never says God won't answer you. James says one of the reasons we don't have is because we have stopped asking. So a loved one who's not a Christian, you pray for them for a year, five years, 10 years, 30 years. It's challenging. We think, how long, oh Lord? God, why don't you answer more quickly? What's God doing here? He's teaching us patience and persistence in prayer. He's also perhaps increasing our praise the day that it does come. But in our weakness and unbelief, if we're honest, we'll say, I I don't really expect much to happen when I pray. We can be like those people in the prayer meeting, praying for Peter's release from prison, and when God answered the prayer, and Peter showed up at the prayer meeting, they said, no way, that's not Peter. Can't be. What about Paul? As we think of examples of prayer. Do you remember what Paul prayed? That the thorn in his flesh be removed. How did God answer that prayer? He did not remove the thorn, but he answered the prayer by adding something to the thorn. What was it? He added his sufficient grace. We are not self-sufficient or self-sustaining. If we sensed our neediness more, we would pray more persistently. Whenever we get bad news about ourselves, a loved one, the world we live in, we pray more urgently, don't we? But we are always in that kind of need. In our peace and stability, we think, I'm doing pretty well. Things are going great. I really don't have time to pray. We need to slow down and remember to continue steadfastly in prayer. Martin Luther is an example of this. He had a friend in the days of the Reformation who was dying. This man was a great helper to him. This man in 1540 was on his deathbed. The doctor said he's going to die. Luther wrote a letter and said, The Lord will never let me hear while I live that you are dead, but will permit you to survive me. For this I am praying. Sound bold? Yeah, it does, because this man, when he got Luther's letter, could hardly speak. By the grace of God, a few days after he got the letter, he completely recovered. He lived six more years to assist in the Reformation, and as Luther prayed for, he outlived Luther by two months. God answered the believing prayer of Luther for his dying friend. Loved ones, sometimes we're so tentative in prayer. God says, be bold. You have not because you ask not. So I ask as we come to the end of First John, do you have a regular time of prayer, personal prayer, a place of it, a pattern of prayer, a plan, church directory, missionaries, friends, nations of the earth? How about as a family? Does your family and your kids know we are going to sit down and open the word of God and pray together at this time regularly? As a church, that's why we have the prayer meeting, that there is this set apart time that we would resolve to steadily, patiently press on in prayer. Third, knowing that you are growing in sanctification. So what does John want? He wants you to know. In particular, he wants you to know that your assurance of eternal life does not make you introspective, but Pushes you out to pray for others. That's what he says here in verses 16 and 17. He wants you to intercede, in this case, for a brother or it could be a sister who has sinned. See that? Literally, they have committed a sin by which there's perhaps a pattern going on. True believers, loved ones, may have their assurance of salvation shaken, diminished by some secret sin. God withdraws the light of his countenance. We can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. We can commit monstrous sins. We can lose an awareness of God's grace until by his grace we repent and seek his favor again. That's what's going on here. John says you're aware of a brother or sister that's sinning. You can't ignore it. You cannot just brush it off. And he says here, if you see this, not a rumor, not that you heard someone tell you something from someone else, this is also not snooping on someone, not meddling. This is not gossiping. So if you hear of this or see this or find out about a brother or sister like this, what should you not do? You should not shun them. Sometimes the church does that. Sometimes the church is shocked when we find out or hear that someone has sinned. We should not be. We shouldn't be shocked at all. So don't shun them. Don't turn away from them. Don't gossip about them. Instead, what does John say? Pray for them. Now, if it is illegal, if it is abuse, tell the police, don't cover it up tell the elders, but your first place, if you say, you find out this brother is really dealing with anger, your first place is not to go to the phone and call up the elders and say, I think Bob has an anger problem. Your first place is to pray for them. As you pray for them, you're asking God would give them life, that God would restore to them the joy of their salvation. Maybe it's a sister. Maybe it's a sister that you're close to, and you can tell this sister is really bitter, that there's a pattern of bitterness. Pray for her before the throne of grace and ask God to use you to help her to be restored. That's what Galatians 6 says. This is not just the role of your pastor and elders. Yes, we are shepherds. Yes, we seek after the sheep when they are straying. But as a brother or sister, this is your responsibility to the family of God as well. But what should you do about the one who's unrepentant? Do you see that? There's a sin leading to death. Interesting text, isn't it? Very challenging text. What's he talking about? Well, first of all, what's he Not talking about, right? We needed to say that. This is not talking about the Roman Catholic idea of a mortal versus a venial sin. It's not saying that. The Bible says every sin is mortal, the wages of sin is death. So it's not saying that. Now, the flip side of that is another error people make. People say, well, every sin is the same. That's not true either. What does every sin deserve? The wrath and curse of God. But some sins may be more heinous than others. Secondly, what could this be saying? Well, there's three potential possibilities what this could be. It could be blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the sin leading to death, where someone says that the work of Jesus is the work of the devil. That's an unforgivable sin. It also could be talking about physical death, that someone sins in a way that they are actually, physically, they die. And you think of Ananias and Sapphira, right? They lied. They died on the spot. You think of 1 Corinthians. Some of them took the Lord's Supper as a drunken feast. Some of them died. It could be that. I think it's probably apostasy, however. We don't know for sure, But I think this is talking about not physical death, but spiritual death. This sin is a sin committed by someone who once professed to believe, but now they deny Christ. They never truly believed. This is the context of John. They went out from us, but they were never truly of us. They've now rejected Christ, rejected the Christian faith. They have a bitter, hard-hearted resistance to the Lord. Think of Pharaoh. He hardened his heart. God hardened his heart. Think of Esau. A person can sin like Esau where it's not possible anymore for them to repent. Any person who wonders or is afraid that they might have committed this sin hasn't. This is someone who is so hard and so proud that they are not even thinking about these things. We must not rashly conclude someone has committed this. We must not be less merciful than God himself. And John also says, I do not ask or say that you should pray for that. You see that? Interesting. He's not saying don't pray for them, fly it out. But as Kevin DeYoung says, he seems to be saying there are times when you would do well to direct your prayers elsewhere to not cast your intercessory pearls before apostate swine. This person is hard and proud. It seems like they're committing apostasy. Over here, you have people that are humble and repentant. Pray for them. Another thing this tells us, God will not save someone who renounces Jesus. So don't pray that he would. Don't say, okay, this person has denied Christ. God saved them anyway. That's not God's will. You cannot expect someone who rejects Christ to be received by Christ as if they had not rejected Christ. The point is, as a church, we need to be praying for each other. When we're struggling, when there are spiritual downtimes, pray, as verse 18 says, that God will help us overcome sin in our daily life. This is another we know. See that verse 18? Everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Not saying that as a Christian you don't sin anymore, but saying the pattern has been broken. Why? You're united to Christ. The guilt of sin has been removed. You fight against sin, but you can no longer ever sin anymore without feeling convicted by it. That's what John's getting at. Pray, Lord, lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. I'm going to face temptations today. Lord, I don't even know what they are. They might be lying, cheating, lusting, anger. And Lord, when I endure one temptation, help me not to give in to another. Help me not, as verse 21 says, to harden my heart in idolatry. Isn't that an interesting way to end the book? Verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. At the time John wrote in Ephesus, there's a temple that took 200 years to build. Diana, the goddess, stood at the center of the temple. It was 420 feet long. When Paul preached in Acts 19 about the idolatry of the city, they rushed into a theater that perhaps had 25,000 people, and they shouted for two hours, "Great as Artemis of the Ephesians," for two hours. That's the idolatry of Ephesus where John is writing this letter. But the idolatry of our own time and our own hearts is no different. An idol is anything or anyone that would replace Jesus as the chief delight of our hearts. Our hearts are factories of idols. The raging thirst of men and women, desiring some means of satisfaction. It's like drinking salt water. The more you drink it, the more... It doesn't quench your thirst. The more you have, the more you want. The more you want, the less you're satisfied. And nothing keeps the child of God from idols more than a deepening sense of the love of God for them in Christ. Verse 18. Jesus protects us from sin. He protects us from the evil one. It's talking there about Satan. The evil one does not touch him. See that verse 18? To touch means to lay hold of. In some contexts, this word referred to something on fire. Satan cannot touch you. Satan cannot set you on fire. Satan cannot rip you apart from the saving grace you have in Jesus. Satan cannot take you out of Jesus. Satan cannot harm you eternally. You're in him. The world, however, verse 19, is in Satan. You're in Christ, the world's third option. You notice that? There's no, I'm my own boss. I do my own thing. I'm not accountable to anyone. I'm the master of my own fate. I'm the captain of my ship. That possibility does not exist. By nature, in pride, that's what the unbeliever thinks. The unbeliever, it says here, the rest of the world is in the power of Satan. It lies there, verse 19. The picture is they're not struggling. They're quietly, unconsciously asleep. Lulled to sleep under the power of Satan. They are apathetic, hard, Asleep, blind, and dead. And this verse is telling us Satan's fundamental power in this world is this spiritual blindness. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving from seeing the light of the glory of God in the gospel of Jesus. And that's where we would be as well if it were not by the grace of God. But God has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the gospel. So that, fourth, we know God. The final we know. John says, verse 20, we know the Son of God has come. Intellectually, you know the Son of God has come. He's become a man. He's fully God. He's fully man. He's truly real. He's not a made-up, fictitious ghost. The idea of him having come also means... He's still here. Not physically. He's ascended, yes. But consider this. Your husband greets you at the door. He says, your mother came over. Or he greets you and your husband says, your mother has come over. The first means she's gone. The second means she is still here. That's the picture of Christ. He has come through his life of perfect obedience and righteousness, through his death, propitiatory, atoning for sin, taking our curse upon himself, through his resurrection. Not only has he come, but by his word and spirit, he is still here. He is alive. He's not studied like Napoleon as kind of a distant historical figure. That means he must be encountered personally now. How does that happen? John says, because God has given us understanding. By the Spirit of God, we have a spiritual understanding where we not only know the truth, but by the Spirit we know the power of the truth. It's the Holy Spirit's ministry to seal the truth of God's Son on your hearts so you know its power. Opening your eyes to acknowledge its truth inclining your will to embrace it, stirring your heart to love it. That's what John's talking about. You know him. You know God. You have fellowship with God and with each other by faith in Jesus. And you are in him. Who is that? That's his son, Jesus Christ. This is believing in Christ This is believing into Christ. This is becoming one with Christ, in union with Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. As Sinclair Ferguson says more accurately, if any, in Christ, new creation. When you are in Christ, you belong to a new order of reality where everything is different, As a Christian, then, it's not just that there are some things you no longer do that you once did. There may be some things, yes. Just that you do some things now that you didn't do, although there may be some things. It is that, Ferguson says, everything is transformed. Something lives in every hue that Christless eyes have never seen. We see this world through different eyes. Why? Because we belong to a different world altogether. John wants you to know, if any, in Christ, new creation. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this letter of John that these things were written to us who believe in the name of the Son of God, that we may know by faith that we have eternal life. O Lord, may we see the beauty of Christ and know that by faith in him we have forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation, freely given by you, O God, all of grace for the sake of Christ's merits. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.